and resolute where you pursue your dreams with hard work dedication sacrifice discipline and passion but above all it's respect for what the ice can do for you it was always my goal to make it to the nhl since i can remember i wanted to be a hockey player when you're hot you're hot really a bold with his fourth goal of the game and the Colorado rockets having a whole lot of fun tonight but the ice and all its majesty can hit you back when you least expect it. An injury, my first year pro at 21 years old, led me down a dark path to Oxycontin. Shortly after that, I found myself addicted to heroin and not playing hockey. Demons hide in every corner. They can take everything away from you. Everything you worked so hard to achieve. And before you know it, the demons own you. Ultimately, I became homeless on the streets in Vancouver on Hastings, which is widely known as the worst block in North America. Brady Leovold was on the edge of realizing his dream of playing in the NHL. Then he lost it all to drug addiction. I was hiding a dark secret. These are real stories about pain, loss, and genuine people. The sad truth of it all, success comes with a price. Want to die, many times I was in the psych ward, tried to commit suicide. Welcome to the Hockey to Heroin Road to Recovery Podcast with your host, Brady Leavold. I'm grateful, oh yeah, able, oh yeah, I'm stable, oh yeah, no label, oh yeah, you know me, I have only... Oh, welcome back to another edition of Hockey to Heroin, the Road to Recovery. Guys, this is episode number 59 this is Brady Leibold coming at you guys live from Morrisburg, Ontario. Hopefully, if you're watching either on Facebook or YouTube, if you're not, uh, you could check it out anywhere, anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, I'm going to quickly say uh, I'm no longer uh, with the Hockey Podcast Network. Uh, I want to make it perfectly clear uh, that uh, this was uh, at my first request, and I'm going to explain why uh, coming January I have some very very exciting news. Um, I got a great opportunity uh, ahead of me on a new network uh, and the future's looking very bright. So I just want to say quickly, thank you to everyone at the Hockey Podcast Network, Dylan and Nisha. They have some amazing things going on as well, and they're going to be uh, supporting everything I'm doing and I'll be supporting everything they're doing. Um, and, you know, I just want to say thank you guys uh, for, you know, letting the transition be smooth uh, and uh, letting me go on my merry way. Um, it's been a pleasure getting to know you guys. It truly has. So thank you so much. Uh, guys, it is World Mental Health Day. That's right. October 10th today, World Mental Health Day, guys. And uh, I mean, I talk about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. I struggle with mental health and addiction. And uh, it's real. Um, it's, it can be a struggle. And, and I want to quickly say too, that like, I think it's great. The awareness is great, but I'm pretty sure that it's 2020 and we've been talking about mental health for, for many years. And, and most people are pretty aware that it exists. Let's start taking some action. Where's mental health action day? Like, where are the steps being taken, um, for support? And that is my question. 
So I think the awareness is great. I think there's a lot of people doing a lot of great things um, and I'm not knocking it. Uh, what I am saying is that I think there's so much room uh, for improvement all around the board, all around the globe. Uh, and, you know, I want to focus mostly on the hockey community. And, you know, I talk about it all the time, guys. I beat it till it's blue in the face and I'll continue to do so. The Puck Support Foundation, it's in its infancy, guys. Um, there it is right there. Uh, you know, this was Mental Illness Awareness Week, actually, the 4th to the 10th. And today is the cap off day. Um, and I, I hope that anyone struggling out there uh, is, you know, finding the courage uh, to to reach out because I know it's not easy. It took me way too long. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but listen, the Puck Support Foundation is around. Go to PuckSupport.com. Uh, I've mentioned it too. We got Sandra Murray on board. If anyone's struggling, uh, you know, reach out to her. We're going to continue to build our team. Um, and this is someone that you can contact for immediate support. Sandra at PuckSupport.com. Um, listen, I'm getting messages every day. I even get messages from hockey players' wives, um, multiple of them. Sometimes in the case of the player struggling and Actually, last night I got one from a guy's wife who herself is struggling. So, I mean, it's pretty far-reaching, guys. The hockey community is pretty small. And, and again, this isn't limited to just players. We're talking coaches, hockey parents. There's some moms out there that are warriors. I was watching the NHL draft. Holy shit. Kidding me? Zade Wisdom's mom. Um, wow. And uh, uh, the Weisblatt family, and she's deaf. Um, pretty touching stuff there. Those are a couple puck support warriors. That's what I like to call them. And another one of those is Dave Gilmore. Okay. Doug Gilmore's brother talk about it all the time. He's turning 70 November 14th. He's going to bike 50 K and run 20 K that's 70 kilometers on his 70th birthday to raise money for the puck support foundation. Pretty awesome. So I'm hoping to be up in Kingston guys and, uh, looking forward to that. Also, just got this in literally as I was going live. Here we go. There it is. The first one right there. And uh, so if you want your customized puck support hoodie, um, feel free to uh, reach out. We're going to take some orders coming soon. So it's just an example. Uh, we're going to throw some strings in their hockey laces up top, make it look a little bit nicer. So that's exciting, guys. That's pretty much uh it uh, for the intro. I just too want to say um, another exciting news. I got, I've been literally getting like some prayers answered. Like I, I do a lot of praying. I just like, because I'm in like dire straits these past few months, you know, and things just keep happening. And I, if you've been following along, you, you know, you know, the stuff that's been happening. I talk about it all the time, like just amazing gifts, sometimes like physical gifts. And sometimes um, and, and more importantly, in other cases, gifts that are so much far, far reaching than any physical gift. And, you know, last yesterday, I got an email from Torn White, who I had never met and didn't even know who he was. Well, he's a five year Western League alumni, uh, four year CIS guy. Uh, now he's doing his master's and he's doing philanthropy. And guess what? Nonprofit leadership. And he, this guy sent me an email uh, and he wants to get involved. And I'm like, yo, bud, here's the keys to the ship. You take it and run with it. Let's go. Um, because I don't have 
uh, the capacity to run a foundation on my own uh, and even with a team. I, I can't be in charge of this. I don't want to be. I want to be in the trenches. I want to be helping people. So corn wheat or yeah, man, it's awesome. I uh, can't, uh, can't even uh, tell you guys how awesome that is. Um, torn white. Sorry. I don't know why I was saying weed. I was getting mixed up with uh, torn wheat. The guy I played with at Swift Current. Uh, but anyways, listen, it's unbelievable. And if you want to get involved, please email us team at pucksupport.com. Follow us anywhere on social media at Puck Support and also at Puck Support Warriors. Do you have what it takes to be a Puck Support Warrior? We're looking for ambassadors. We got Darren McCarty on board, Riley Cote, Josh Gratton, um, lots of guys. Uh, you know, Darren Fleury likes what we're doing too. Uh, a lot of guys and, uh, you know, Scott Thornton, uh, Matt Klein. I mean, I could go on, but listen, we don't want just NHL guys or pro guys. We want good people. Do you have what it takes? Are you playing minor hockey right now? Maybe do you have a kid? Hopefully if you're playing minor hockey, you're not listening to my podcast, but do you have a kid in minor hockey? Direct them to the Puck Support Foundation. You know, we want to get in and start making change early. We got to do it early. Um, that's the only way we're going to really make a change. So guys, that's it. That's it for the intro. Thank you so much. Um, you know, for being patient and listening to me talk about the Puck Support Foundation, just understand, please understand that this is like, you know, the podcast is one thing, but I would give up the podcast right now. I would press end broadcast right now and walk away from all this. If it meant, uh, that the Puck Support Foundation meant, like got going and, and saved even just one life. I would, I'd walk away from it all. So anyways, guys, that's it. But before we do get into the episode, you know this episode is proudly brought to you by Team Issue Limited. Team Issue is connecting all walks of life. Team Issue does this by recreating that special feeling of being part of something bigger, a community for all striving towards the same goal. Guys, check them out, teamissue.ca. Use promo code TOEDRAG15 to get 15% off your total purchase. That's uh, Jesse's uh, company. I'm expecting a huge shipment of Team Issued gear here. And uh, we're going to be doing giveaways again uh, on Instagram now. So make sure you follow us um, at Hockey to Heroin, at Hockey to Heroin Podcast on Instagram and support the former WHL Kelowna Rocket, Saskatoon Blade, and Moose Jaw Warrior Jesse Paradise and his company, Team Issued Limited. All right. I'm really looking forward to this one. This guy coached me uh, for my cup of coffee uh, in the American Hockey League. And uh, we haven't really spoken since. Not even off air. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about uh, his career. We'll touch on a little bit on hockey, maybe on free agency, but we don't really talk too much about that kind of stuff on my show, as you guys know. There's lots of shows for that, like Real Kipper at Noon. Check that one out. Uh, but yeah, let's do it. Let's get right in to episode 59. Enjoy this. quite a story he was played new westminster junior hockey with bill ranford wasn't drafted pretty good junior career going for him but the injuries left him off the draft list phone 
Joe Lyons in the offseason. The Bruins scout in the area, and he asked if he could play. Said he'd drive his way uh, and pay his own way, so out he came. Impressed everyone at that camp, which is definitely a stepping stone. When I first came to Boston, I came out of the Atlantic Coast League, and, uh, you know, I, I, the, the league was horrible when I was there. Impressed everybody there and won himself a job in the American League in training camp. Somebody. Allen hammers him with a right hand, trying to get off the glass now. May hammers him with the uppercut. And Allen May just keeps getting loose and popping him. He's got good balance, Allen May does. Blackton may wish he stayed in Peoria. As I said, Al May over 300 penalty minutes through 58 games. Allen May called up from Maine Mariners. And here they go. Alan May, tough boy. Danico, also tough. Alan May spotting him a little in height. He's gotten in some nice shots. The two of them can go. I wouldn't like to go with either one of them. You know, when you were in Boston, uh, you were a very popular guy for the short amount of time you were here. Remember, you came out of nowhere in training camp and caught everybody's attention, and they gave you a chance to play toward the end, then all of a sudden you're in Edmonton. And I thought it was a great situation for me, and uh, I, I was really maturing as a player and coming into my own. And, no sooner was I, I thought I was getting that, that much closer, I got traded Edmonton. That was a tough team to get traded to with all the talent that they had there. You know, the way the league's going now, you've still got to improve as a player, but you still have to be your physical presence that got you there. Across the line, Berglund will try to walk right in, then feeds to Kiprios with a drive. Richter didn't see it, Berglund around the net, feeds to Lawler between the circles. He so-called enforcers around the National Hockey League are usually one of the, the most quiet, soft-spoken, easy-going guys that you'll find. Uh, you're kind of interesting in as much as uh, I read that your favorite TV show is Nightline and you'd give anything to meet Walter Cronkite. I, uh, I don't think anybody, given a million chances out there, would have picked that Daily Devil. No, it's, it, you know, just because we do what we do, it's a little barbaric what we do out on the ice sometimes, but, you know, I, I have other interests other than just playing hockey. Hockey's something I know, it's in my blood. You know, every guy, every guy in the dressing room thinks he could be a coach. And You know, uh, Mike Milber always taught, told me that, you know, you should wake up early every day and try to do something other than hockey. Try to make your mind fresh and read as much as you can. Uh, everybody wants to be a coach, a manager. You know, you, you can't give every former hockey player a coaching job every year retire. So you, you got to look in other, uh, at other avenues. Yeah, I do want to, you know, I'm worried about right now, I wanna, I, I'm worried about the transition when hockey's going to be done. Hopefully that's not for four or five years. But you have to be prepared, and I don't want to be a failure when I'm done. I want to keep having the success that I've had in the NHL. Well, when I first came to the Washington Capitals in 1989, I had no idea really about the franchise. I was a penalty getter and a hitter and more sandpapered than silk. The fans started to like me, and I started to like playing here a lot because they liked the blue-collar mentality, the physical type of player. I played on five different National Hockey League teams, but this was the team that always treated me the best. 
I'd always wanted to get back here and work in television and one day out of the blue I get an email and it was taken care of in maybe 15 minute phone call. The Washington Capitals are Stanley Cup champions for the first time in franchise history. Finally getting to win a Stanley Cup, uh, it, it's been amazing to be a part of all of it. The fact that Ted gave us all Stanley Cup rings is absolutely incredible and amazing. I think the day that we all found out, we all couldn't believe it. We were all in absolute shock. You could almost die happy. Alan May, I guess. Oh, that's the way it is. All right, guys, let's bring them in. Excited for this one. Hope you guys enjoyed that video. It only took me all night. I'm not the best video editor. This guy's a legend. Uh, and somebody that I wish I would have taken a little bit more time uh, to talk to uh, while having him as a coach. Uh, however, I have the time now, so let's bring him in. Alan May, man, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. And I think your editing skills are pretty awesome. I, I, I know I certainly couldn't do any of that. And my memory, I don't remember any of those interviews, really, uh, from back when I was playing. So uh, thanks a lot for doing that. Hey, no problem. It'll uh, it'll be uploaded separately from the episode two on YouTube. I think you know what? I think it's important, and I started doing this for for my guest. And uh, the videos are kind of new. I think that's maybe the second one, but the the audio intros are something that I started to do maybe you know fifteen to twenty episodes ago. And the reason why is because I think it's important. I think it's important for for not only the player himself, but for for people to to see and remember the hockey history and the, and the culture. And I think it really sets the tone to bring a guy on and, and let him remember just, you know, the things that you accomplished because what a career you had, Al. Yeah. You know what? It, it looks back. It was, you know, when it's over, it was too short and uh, with, with everyone, I, even the guys who played 20 years, but it's, you know, I just look, I wouldn't trade any of it. There's, there's a lot of ups and downs, but you know, if you're, if you're focusing on good, you find the good, you're focused on bad, you find the bad. So I've always tried to focus on the good, all the positives. And uh, it, it was a tough road. A lot of different people told me to quit except for myself. So that's probably what I'm most proud of in my career. Well, I see. I didn't even know that. And then the theme of that video was never give up. So it kind of fit, except the one I think I spelt wrong. I got to go back and fix that. But, <laughs> but that's all right. Um, Listen, man. I kind of want to talk about that because you know you you got to play, you played in the Western League like like myself you got to play for the New West Bruins what was that like that must have been crazy because I've only heard stories well you know the big thing with with that is I didn't play major junior until I was twenty years old and the, you know the reason was I didn't get a scholarship you know we were geographically undesirable playing in Saskatchewan I was always a lightweight you know I was five seven in my draft year or was I think one hundred sixty pounds in New West if that. And, uh, you know, so size was always against me, but getting to play there, I got to go. The only reason I went there hundred percent was because er because Ernie McLean phoned me and he, he'd came out of retirement to help get people in the building. And it was a blast. I love playing that arena. I, I would love to play my entire junior career in that arena. Uh, it, it was fun. Uh, it, it was just badass in, in every sense, very physical games. I don't know what the dimensions were. But uh, playing for Ernie, I figured it out early. Uh, if you wanted to get ice time with Ernie, you had to get penalties. It didn't matter if they're like, – I always prided myself on getting better and better every year. It's not taking bad penalties. But with Ernie, you just took penalties. I, get, mm -hmm. I think I got seven minors in Seattle one game, and the next night no one played more. So most coaches would have sat you out for a week. But I, got, I just kept getting it. He just kept sending me back out to take penalties. And you know, I figured out you know, myself, the Ewan brothers, Brent Hughes, uh, I think McPherson, Mike McWilliams – 
you know, we took a lot of penalties and we got a lot of ice time because of it. <laughs> yeah, punch. Uh, yeah. That that must have been pretty cool playing for him, I, especially coming out of retirement. Did you ever see him throw a, a throw a garbage can on the ice? We had a bench clearing one night. I don't, not really a bench clearing because you couldn't really do it back then. But I had, you know, I used to love hitting goalies and we're playing Kamloops one night. You remember in New York, they had the benches were on the opposite side, blue yeah. lines. Yeah. And, and actually across. So they're in their end, we're in our end, you know, where the blue lines are. And I run their goalie. But the penalty boxes in a lot of those old buildings were on the home team side, you know, total advantage. And uh, I had hit... Uh, I had hit the, the goalie, and then the next time I was out, Rudy Postcheck jumped me, but he he warned me when he's behind me. He goes, "Ow, they sent me!" So he jumps me. Uh, nothing really happens from it. There's no fight. But next thing you know, Ernie takes. Uh, there was a picture of a of a of a pig and a Kamloops Oilers thing, and it said, "Have another hot dog hitch." And Ernie lifts it up in the air, and it's like, you know, you, he'd get suspended for something like that now. But it was this big cartoon character, like you know, three by four behind our bench. Well, then, you know, Ernie wears a patch on it, you know, where he lost an eye. Yeah. And next thing you know, Hitchcock goes like this and he starts walking around the bench like he's blind. And, oh, and you know, what? so even though Ernie started it, he got pretty pissed yeah. off. And the next thing you know, fight, fight, fight. So it's every time the puck would drop, there'd be another fight. And it goes on like literally one second at a time. I would love to see the old game sheet, but absolutely amazing. He says that. <laughs> And I think we ended the game. I got kicked out of the game. I can't remember who I fought. I can't even remember how many fights I had. But I think I had two fights after that, but got, maybe got kicked out in a line brawl. And uh, <laughs> by the time I walk out of the dressing room, I showered up to watch the rest of the game. We literally have one guy on the bench, and, there's a th and it's three on three on the ice. So just completely, it was just pandemonium. So that was kind of like what it was like playing for Hitch. And then the next time we went to playing Kamloops, it was patch night. And, you know, oh. we'd gone in there and Ernie said, no way. He goes, you know, before it was, before we realized all the fans were wearing patches or whatever it was, uh, Ernie said, okay, guys, we, we just got to try to win this game. We're scrambling for a playoff spot. And he sees his patch and he was pissed off. Next thing you know, we got 20 fights. And I think oh. I got, I think okay. I got KO'd out of that. Like I got you know, three and out in that game. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just a different, different time. And I think if you took transported people back to what, junior hockey was then and it was even worse five years before 10 years 15 20 it, it was kind of scary and and somewhat barbaric but uh it, it was just the way things were and yeah. uh i'm happy i got to play through that it, it was pretty interesting a lot of great a lot of great stories absolutely like that's something that you know people will never see and, and certainly players will never experience again i mean just with the way that the, the game is going and, and and we'll get into that but that that's pretty cool so Talk about the experience. We heard it in the intro and, and your, your transition to pro Al, what the hell you made the call and, and got your own opportunity. Well, it, actually it, it, that's the condensed version. The, the, the longer version is that after my, I tried to get a hold of every national hockey league team to get a trial. I said, I was a fitness freak. I worked out way more than I, anyone I've ever known. And it was over the top and it might be why I could never gain weight. But uh, I worked out, put in like an eight-hour day, every day working out, did everything possible. And, you know, it's kind of emaciated myself by where I, no matter what I ate, I was losing weight, but I worked out, I worked out, I worked out. And Rick Dudley was running a team in the old IHL, which was a lot of teams like Flint, Michigan, Saginaw, Port here, and places like that, that no one would ever go to unless they're, you know, playing hockey or live in Michigan. So yeah. Rick, Rick invites myself. But what Rick was is the greatest recruiter in the history of hockey. He'd come out of this league 
that no one had ever heard of. And he's in the IHL. He had a good NHL World Hockey Association career. But he called for every overage junior that didn't wasn't going anywhere. Every college, every guy that was graduating Canadian college or any level of college hockey in the States. Uh, so I thought it was pretty awesome. So I went with a buddy of mine, another overage guy I played uh, midget hockey with. He played in Kamloops, Mark Kachowski. And we flew to Flint, Michigan for a tryout. Fuck, there was 160 guys oh, trying out. Yeah. There, there was a guy called the White, uh, White Mike Tyson. Uh, there, there were, like literally in the, the line, they were just making sure you had two eyes. They counted your teeth and they made sure that you had two legs and two arms. Like that was the physical. <laughs> there were, and uh, then he just signed off. But there were, the white Mike Tyson, the real, like, call, he was dressed like Mike Tyson, but he was like super white, like a guy about 5'9", five, 5'10", five, massive, just roided out Bill Ombly. He had those big muscles up here and huge pecs. He had his shirt off. He was in boxing shorts and boxing shoes, and he's shadow boxing. And I remember it was the second time that day that I had, I had because Mark and I almost got in a fight with these two French guys in the airport in Detroit. It was, that's how bizarre it was. They, they must have figured we were going there, and they were tough guys. And, here we, you know, Mark, Mark and I, we look like we did not look like hockey players. Like we had no cuts on our faces, short, you know, just very different looking at the, you know, like compl clean complexions, you know, not that big of guys. And these guys were looking at us. They want, it was the Roberts brothers who went, you know, one of them won a Stanley Cup in Montreal. One of them uh, played in Quebec for a little bit and a, a couple other places. But then, you know, Mike, the guy shadow boxing and, I look at Mark and go, what the fuck did we get ourselves into? And then that night saw my first handgun ever. Some dude running down the street when we were having dinner with a, with a, with a gun in his hand. I don't know what type of handgun it was. And cops were chasing after him. I was like, what the hell is going on? So that was the introduction. And then the next day, uh, I think it was a three-day training camp. I had, I think, 13 fights. Uh, they tracked stats. Mark and I, we had all the fights. We, we were putting pucks in that. It was a three-on-three only nine guys on the ice at a time. So you, you got one minute shift, uh, two one minute shifts in a row, and then you got a one minute break. And it was hot as, hot as hell. The arena didn't have air conditioning. So it was just, and the guys, all the older guys, and like I said, there was 160 guys in training camp and like 120 of them had NHL contracts because back then you could have unlimited contracts. Like the Rangers used to have, you know, 150 or more contracts at a time, if I'm correct. And they used to have massive training camps themselves. And I don't know how guys made it. But anyways, uh, it, it was absolutely insane. And then, you know, I ended up getting cut from that team because they couldn't even afford to pay me 400 bucks a week or whatever it was. 380 I think, was, was the minimum. And, uh, and there was no housing, none of that stuff like you have on the coast and all those different leagues now. But uh, Coach convinces me. He goes, I'm going to get a bunch of these guys bought out. I'm going to send you – go play in this town. And I was like, ah, I should just go back home and, you know, play CIAU. And it was already an option for me to play at a few different schools. And uh, it convinces me to go down there because it's next to, he goes, this, you know, down the Carolinas, it's next to the, next to the ocean. You go to the ocean every day. Well, it was three hours to the beach. It wasn't next to the arena, like he made it sound, but it was yeah. pretty damn fun. And the league started out with five teams, ended up with four. And uh, I ended up getting NHL contract offers the next year. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, well, yeah, I just showed it there. You had like 310 penalty minutes there or whatever. But that, I mean, like we talked about, it was a different time. Uh, getting that call to Boston, uh, how surprised, like, were you pretty surprised? I mean, I guess it was after the season you said you were getting contract offers. So I guess you kind of knew. But 
What about when you first started to gain NHL interest? After all that you went through, you get passed up in the draft, you go to this town, this new league. At, at that point, are you thinking that, hey, I still have a shot? Or like, really, how were you thinking? And and when that chance came, how did it feel? Well, you know what? It's I've always believed in myself. And even when I got cut in the IHL, I was to me, I was the best player in that training camp. And they cut, they cut me. I go, I just got bad luck. Like I played here, I played there. And I was just saying, I've, I've got to find a way to keep playing to, you know, get people to notice me. I didn't weigh a lot. So, you know, I did, I hit everything that moved guys would want to fight me because I wasn't that big. I could hold my own barely, barely ever got my ass kicked. And I don't think I got my ass kicked till I was older, like, you know, much older, like around 30 years old. And, you know, I, I just look at, you know, all of those things. And at the end of that season, what did happen is I was getting my last paycheck ready. And I, I made 250 a week playing in the coast. And, I, and there was no housing. Uh, we got 35 a win. Our team didn't win a whole lot. I always love to say that. And, uh, but I always had money. I always had money. And, yeah. uh, you know, so at the end of that season, you know, we hadn't played in about a week or two. And a coach from another team, when I was picking up my last check, actually in the office picking up the check, a coach from another team and the secretary goes, he's right here. Ask him yourself. No one would have been able to get a hold of me. No cell phones. There was nothing like that back then. And the phone was shut off, apartment, you know, the keys were handed, and we were going to go to spring break, uh, a group of us. And uh, so this guy goes, uh, hey, the Islanders called me. They need a guy in the American Hockey League in Springfield. And they asked me for one of my guys. And he said, I wouldn't send one of my one damn guy on my team. No one was worth it. There's a guy in the team in this league that can play in the NHL. He could play on the Islanders right now. He could play on your team right now. And... Uh, that's what he told me on the phone. I was like, holy shit. Some, I just heard it the week before, but it didn't matter because it came from John Tortorella, a <laughs> rival coach. Because John, you know, the only pro hockey he played was, was in this, this league that became the East Coast League. And uh, John had told me that at the end of the season. And he said, you're an NHL player. You got to quit, you know, doing that. You know, you got to quit being crazy on the ice, basically, is what he's telling me. Concentrate on, you know, more on scoring goals and things like that. And when I played those four games in American Hockey League, the coach told me after the second game, he goes, I called the Islanders. I said, they should give you a three-year contract right now and bring you up to play. Wow. And, uh, and then he asked me, he goes, did you have any drug problems in junior? Did you, did you get, you know, have did, uh, a DWI? Did you get anyone pray? Did you do anything wrong? I said, none of the above. And uh, none of the above. That's, I just didn't get drafted because I was small. I was from a, a different, you know, played in a league that wasn't, you know, they weren't spending money on scouts now. Now they go all over everywhere. They go to, you know, the, you know, places that takes three or four flights to get you to watch guys. Uh, they watch you on, you know, every arena has got cameras in it. Now you can watch any game remotely, you know, yeah. even youth hockey games. So yeah. it was completely different. So I ended up getting, I, I had a big time fight in Rochester in that four game stint. And I played very well. I think I had a couple assists in the game, and I played very well. And I was a presence and had an off-ice incident, leaving the ice with, like, one of the biggest, scariest-looking dudes I've ever seen in my life that was suspended, a guy on, like, six foot eight, 280, a guy named Andy Ristow. He was terrifying-looking, but he was suspended. Thank hockey gods were looking out for me. There you go. So a after that, I got Islanders. Uh, they couldn't find me. Uh, to offer me a contract because you know you couldn't track dudes down and then you know rochester actually found me at my then girlfriend's place in north carolina like they called wow. me like buffalo called me in the middle of a day and you know so it's just completely bizarre how everything worked back then and then the next year i actually took a chance on myself and went to uh boston because they had to fill an entire farm team so that's where the craziness goes i i, I turned down you know the bird in the hand 
And, uh, you know, it, it worked out very well because Mike Milbury was absolutely phenomenal for my career. And I, and I really could have played for the Boston Bruins opening night from the training camp I had, the preseason that I had. And, but I, looking back, it's the best thing was that they cut me and sent me to the American Hockey League. And I got to play for Mike and Gordy Clark and developed. And I think I probably would end up with all types of issues had I gone to the NHL too soon. You know, like just in over your head, you know, especially being a physical guy. Uh, there would have been some carnage. You know, the guys were big, and you had to kind of learn your way. So I don't believe in getting there too fast. You kind of pay your dues. So, you know, long-winded story of how I got there. But, you know, I I, it, it was a lot of just you have to take your chances on yourself. You have to believe in yourself. But, you know, I don't think you want it too soon, too fast, too easy. Yeah, and I, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. I, that's 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 the stuff I'm talking about. I think, you know what I mean? These are the stories that, you know, not many people get to hear. Um, and... You know, I, I love hearing it, and this is a huge reason why I started the podcast. So, um, you know, you were in Boston. You got traded to Edmonton. How long were you there? Uh, not very long, but it seemed like you were playing all right when you were there. So what happened there? Well, it, it just, you know, the Boston Bruins would have been perfect way for me to start my career. And I, I got my first NHL games, the first guy to come out of the coast in a league that low to go right up to the National Hockey League. So, you know, that, that was, you, you get your first NHL game in, you say, oh, you always say, I just want one game and then, you know, I could die, yeah. but you get one, you want two, you want 200, you want 2000 yeah. type of thing. So you, I realized there was things I need to work on. I knew I wasn't going out for good at that time. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was a captain as a rookie. Uh, and, you know, I, I just had, you know, good thing. And I, you know, I, I fought every guy in the American Hockey League. I was on pace for 20 goals. I get traded to the Oilers. They had the choice of any guy off the American League team, but they thought I was 6'5", 250. I showed up. I was six foot one and a bit and like 170 pounds max. And, you know, it wasn't the guy. They, so they thought it was Mar- the new Marty McSorley. I was, you know, yeah. a, fraction, a fraction of Marty's size. But they were too good. And that's what happened to the Oilers. They were too good. They had, think of their right wing. I was exclusively right wing at that time. You know, I ended up, the next year I started playing center left wing you know everything every forward position played some games at defense but the yeah so but the thing is uh they had yari curry glenn anderson craig simpson that's just the first three right wingers then they had a guy named normal comb who was a really good hockey player a right shot first rounder uh, kevin mcclellan center and right wing marty mcsorley at that time was a forward who was a right winger so basically impossible and they were in that ridiculous run of winning cups yeah and it was just it was tough so the i was actually mad i got traded to my hometown team because they, they were too good. But the thing that it did do when you go back and look at your process of development is the practices were yeah. so hard. And was, you had to learn, my first time called up to Edmonton, it was confusing. I was on a line, uh, gee, I can't even remember, I was skating with Messe and Anderson on a line and uh, in practice. And it, I was dizzy, like I, we didn't, you don't do stops and starts up there. We, we were playing Russian hockey, How the, you know, it was loops in the, like six regroups in the neutral zone and things like that. And, you know, every pass I gave or caught was a can of corn, you know, the first day. I was, it was so fast. It was, and Boston Bruins were, you know, they ended up playing them in the finals and I was with the team and they were, it it was like uh, an ant racing a Ferrari. And it was unbelievable how fast and, but being with them for one year, basically trade deadline to trade deadline was an incredible thing for my skating development. uh, You know, the way I thought about the game. And, and it helped me when I finally got to be a full-time NHLer, I, you know, when I get traded from Edmonton to LA and I played New Haven, I was flying and I never got tired, but our practices were really damn hard with Ron Lowe and the American Hockey League. So 
you look back, you know, you don't regret any of that. Like you have to take it as a lesson. And all I knew is I didn't want to play in Cape Breton for that long. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so when I get traded, it, it was a blessing because I, I wanted to play in the NHL. And with Edmonton, I don't think I ever would have played in the NHL. I would have been like all those old Montreal Canadians that by the time they got out of their system, uh, they were 30 years old. And that was like way too old back then, especially if you're going to be a rookie or a first year full-time player it was just way yeah. too long. So yeah. I, I look back and you know what, like once again, if it comes too easy, if it comes too fast, I don't think you appreciate it. You don't work for it. It doesn't taste the same and you got to kick ass and, you know, just believe in your time. You got You can't be cocky. You can't be a prick. You got to be a good teammate. You got to work hard. You got to do everything right and, and trust in it. And, you know, that's, it's hard to tell someone, like if I were telling the younger me that I sure I wouldn't listen to fucking this old man right now. I would, you know, it would be, you're stubborn when you're young, you don't listen to people and you know, it's hard to make those connections. Yeah, it's well, yeah, it's it's absolutely true. But you you ended up how do you how did you end up in Washington? Tell me that I don't know. Well, that I played and the American Hockey League was a pretty small league. It was just basically an East Coast league. It went and the furthest south team was Baltimore, and then I think the next team was New Haven, Connecticut. That were that they were the, if if I'm correct, and it was I don't know if it was eleven or twelve team league when I played in it, but uh, I played incredibly well against Baltimore and. You know, I breakaways, really good fights, a lot of hits. And so when the way I was taught, and this is a Mike Milburyism, and, and Gordy Clark, who now runs the show for the, uh, you know, all of the drafting. And, and I think he's, I don't, I don't know what uh, Gordy's, I feel bad. He's one of my favorite people. I don't know his exact title, but he's assistant GM. And he's in, but he always said, every game you play, you're playing for the other guys. You're, the eye's on you. And when you take me back to my first American Hockey League games, and even my first year, how did I get the American Hockey League? Another coach. How did I get uh, my contract offers? It was other teams that saw me play in the American Hockey League, just four games. And then you've got to play good. You have to lie to yourself and tell yourself, and there might be people watching you from other teams. So when I was coaching, that was one of the things I was told, you never know who's in the building. So come in, look healthy. Uh, you know, an old man thing, have, have your hair cut right. If it's pre like wear your ball cap, like dress, dress mm -hmm. like they have no excuses. To, yep. to look at you and pick another guy. So, yep. you know, that, that goes into, you never know who's watching. So, you know, you have to conduct yourself like everyone's watching. Yeah. It's yeah. That's a huge thing. And I've talked about it with a couple guys on my podcast, like some guys that play junior and pro in this. And this is something that, you know, that I want to talk to like players about as they get older, because I had no idea. I was like maybe the worst pro, the worst, uh, all of it. I just had too much going on, but it's something that, you know, looking back, like I feel that, you know, they could do a better job preparing these kids, certainly in junior, um, to be a pro, even, even preparing kids to go to junior, like into the major junior dressing room. I know it's like you get there and it's like, you're just sort of expected to know what to do. And, and for a lot of guys, it could be intimidating in that dressing room and it filters into onto the ice, right. If they don't have that confidence in the room. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the teams do have more, they have more former players that are in those roles. Now you think about a lot of the scouts, and, and people like that, and not a shot, but they didn't play pros. And they certainly, did, you know, a lot of guys didn't play in the NHL. When you look at teams, you go, who's this guy? Who, and, uh, up and down teams, personnel rosters. But what you need to have, and I'm a big believer in telling the truth, and, t and you know, yeah, and you know, when you're talking to players, and you know, get talk to them like you're, you're their best friend, your brother, your son, you know, whatever it is. And the teams are doing that. And I know when you were in, with, involved with Tampa, it was a whole transition of uh, employees were going left and right, and there was no continuity yet. But I, I do know one thing that 
from the, you know, when Iserman took over that franchise, one of the things that the Detroit Red Wings did, and he was a Detroit Red Wing for a long time, uh, you know, in, in every capacity, is that with their prospects, they, they have probably a couple hundred touches, like communications with their players, like whether it's, you know, someone, what did the coach do today? What did the GM say to the player today? Mm-hmm. Did the player personnel guys, the player, the Chris Draper, what did, he, what did he talk to this guy about? And you're trying to develop and mold them mentally as well. So it's not just everyone worries about the physical attributes, but you're trying to keep an eye on, you know, are these guys going south? You know, if a kid gets a DWI, is there more to that DWI than just a bad Halloween party? Is there, right. is it a chronic thing? Uh, kids showing up late constantly. What, what is causing the lateness? So there, there is that now. Uh, nothing's perfect because, you know, it, every walk of life, you need to have checks and balances like that. So, you know, I know it was looked... Uh, when I played uh, pro hockey, it, it was all right to drink, you know, like no one give a shit if you drank. And it was kind of all, you know, there's a lot of great coaches, guys that had really good careers that would take the bus to a bar say no one in before two o'clock They're They're working on the old team building thing. So it's, you know, it's just, a, it's a different time. And I think now you can't get away with, you know, being hung over all the time. And, you know, there, there are, there are more people watching out for you and there are things now, where if people do have problems that there is someone to talk to and they're, and you're protected and the players association is better than it's ever been. But you know, it's, there are ways, but you know, we'll stay away from that part of it. But the part of player development goes to, you know, conversations and having good people. And I was lucky. I had some really good people in my life uh, as far as coaches. Uh, I go to Gordy Clark, my first assistant coach in, in Maine, uh, I had an older player coach named Dean Hopkins with, you know, Halifax. I had John Tortorella as an assistant coach with the New Haven Nighthawks. I had Doug McClain, uh, John, per- like guys that aren't big. Well, we all know Doug, Doug McClain. It's hard yeah. not to. He's kind of yeah. loud. But yeah. I had a coach named John Perkich. I had some really good Rick Wilson, really good people as assistant coaches on my team. And those are the guys that really make the relationships. And then, you know, I, I, I'm kind of envious now of all the good people that I have around teams that come and talk to the players. And uh, I, I think it's incredibly huge. And, you know, e- even if the guys don't make it, hopefully they learned a lot of lessons along the way. Well, yeah. And I think I think you touched on some good points. And, and that's good to know. And, and I, that makes a, makes a lot of sense um, that Iserman does, brings that in. And I think a lot of teams probably do. And, and that's maybe some things that people don't know. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, have you seen much of a change as far as, because, uh, I mean, you're still pretty involved in the game. Uh, you would have a fairly good idea. Like, the amount of guys out there struggling, and I know too because I talked to a few active players that are that are struggling and obviously many more that are struggling that are retired. Uh, but do you feel like, you know, there's, there's still like a, a – a problem in hockey um, surrounding drinking and drugs at all? Like I, I, don't I, th- I think I'm talking about hockey in general. I think every, I think it's in life in general, it, it, there's yeah. an incredible uptick in it um, with, you know, I, I don't know. I just, know, I, I'll just go back from, you know, I saw that TSN thing on the painkillers and everything a few weeks yeah. back. And, you know, I text a bunch of guys from my era and I go, uh, did you ever take a painkiller? Did you ever take a sleeping pill? Uh, you know, we, I had uh, some surgeries and I've seen some other guys that have had, sur- I, I never took a painkiller out of, I was terrified of it. I had a, a relative growing up that was uh, addicted to pills. I have no idea what kind, uh, but she never, you know, she spent her entire life in her bedroom 
and it was it was bizarre going over to their place. But uh, so I was always scared of being that person. Um, so with the different surgeries I had, uh, never took any. I've taken one painkiller, uh, and it was for a surgery on my jaw about ten years ago. And when the freezing, when I got home from getting you know the work done in the freezing, it hurt so bad, I, and I wasn't going to fill the prescription. I went and. Uh, got it. I said, I just want one. I don't even know what it was, uh, but it, it took me for a ride. The pain was gone the next morning when I touched my teeth together. They didn't hurt anymore. And I went right to the bathroom and flushed the pills. That's how terrified I am with the shit. Yeah. And uh, so, but back then, going back to what I was talking about with those old players, is it wasn't a thing. And, you know, there we didn't have like all the anti-inflammatories in the dressing rooms and you know, it, and I, I just look at, you know, I, I'd heard of guys that played just after me. Oh, I take Ambien. You should take Ambien. Like, nah, I'll have a couple of beers and a turkey sandwich, like the old-fashioned way. And uh, so it was never, you know, I, I've talked to some old players. I said, you know, you couldn't sleep. You'd have a couple of beers, a beer or two, and you'd have a bite to eat, and you'd fall asleep. You know, big deal if you stayed up all night until 3 or 4 and you couldn't sleep. You know, you, you're wired. Uh, and, and it just got to be different. And then you hear of guys taking this and that, and that thing tore it all. Uh, I don't think I've ever would have taken it anyways, but it, it just happens so fast and guys want to play. But I always believe, and you, you can speak to this more, that when you start taking that stuff, it can, you're not taking it, it's taking you. And, you know, I've seen, I've helped with some interventions with friends and, and uh, it, it, when I, I've talked talk to people's family, I said, you know, it's not, it's not the booze. It's not him choosing to drink booze. It is the booze owns him now. And, you know, so I, I said you have to have some compassion there for, for people that are going through that. So it's it's completely different. It's in every walk of life. Uh, there's you know, we hear the names of these things. I didn't know what fentanyl was until a couple of years ago. Like I never had heard of it. It's not my world. And uh, I was in Canada. And my mom said there was like 32 fentanyl deaths in Vancouver. So it's it's a completely different time. I think the teams now have to get back to con controlling all of that and keeping an eye on it. And. You know, those people that have been in my life that I had no idea that had issues, um, that had problems. And, you know, it's, you don't know what to look for if you've never been there. So it's, it, it is, it's different. I think teams will get better. And anytime there's a documentary like that or, or uh, uh, you know, a piece on a, on a national telecast like TSN did, you know, you can be skeptical of it, but your teams also have to look at that and say, hey, there's a lot of things we have to do differently. We've got to make sure that we don't let this happen to our people. Yeah, and I, you know, I think yeah, some of the onus is on the team, but I think the, I think where we're going to really make a difference, Al, is we need to educate the players and, and just let them know, okay, like, because we all know, like you, like you said, we all know players are going to play through, uh, and they're going to do uh, whatever they have to uh, to play through. Um, but I think being able to educate them and and really just you know help them make the right decision. But I think you know letting them know that, you know, if they make the decision to, to you know, not play and, and take care of themselves, that it's not going to affect their hockey career. And you mentioned fentanyl, and I don't know if you know this even, but you remember him, Mitch Fadden. Yep. He passed away from fentanyl. I, I didn't know that. And that was a really good kid. I, I remember him. I loved him. But it's how we got started. All It's just it's bizarre. And there, we have more and more of that. Uh, every day we're all, I think we're all touched more and more by it because it, it, it's worse across all society right now. It's not just in, in the games or the sports. It's yeah. every walk of life. We're all, we're all affected by it younger and more often now. Yeah. 
Well, and, and, you know, Mitch, so the, I've shared this because, you know, Sportsnet did a story on me and, and I talked about, you know, playing with Stamkos and stuff because that tournament in Victoria that you were at, the very first time Stamkos wore a jersey, it was actually me, Fadden, and Stamkos on a line together. And me and Fadden uh, were actually partying the night before, but we, we didn't get together till 11 because he was from Victoria and he went to a party. And I actually was so stressed out because I hadn't been training and I had been using, using cocaine heavily that summer, like just trying to numb out the pain from the pregnancy that I was dealing, all this stuff. And so I actually found Mitch in the, in the lobby and we ended up like hanging out all that night. And they, that's when we really clicked. And then we ended up playing with damn goes together the next day. And we're like, holy shit. But, so that story happened. And then we ended up living together in Norfolk and man, did we had some adventures there too. Like, I'm not going to get into it, but like, you know, and this, all this stuff, but like, you know what I mean? And then all of this. And then, so I went through all this stuff and then I, I start this podcast and I'm like, yeah, I heard about Matthew Lazinski, who is also you played in the OHL. This is why I started the podcast. If anyone, everyone knows it, you can't see because of the glare, but um, he's also an OHL hockey player that died of a fentanyl overdose. So he was the first one that I heard. And, and Al, like I overdosed over 10 times, like I should have been dead. And so that was the first one. And I never met him, but where I am right now, Matt Thompson's, uh, that was his best friend. And he's, Matt reached out to me. Now we've become best friends and, and all of it. So it's a crazy story. But so then I got my shit together and I was like, man, I, I was doing the, the Sportsnet article. And I was like telling Garrett Joyce about, you know, without using any names, I was like, I can't use a guy's name because I haven't talked to him, blah, blah, blah. And I'm trying to reach out to Mitch and I'm telling him that I'm getting better and I want to have him on the podcast. And then it comes out, I, someone called, sends me a message like, hey, I need to call you and you should probably sit down. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? I'm like, call this guy, Justin Bryan, who's best friends with Matt Fadden, Mitch's brother. And he's like, yeah, Mitch passed away in 2017. And I'm like, holy shit. So I was messaged, I must have messaged him 15 times on Facebook, like, you know, not knowing that he'd been gone for three years. And actually him and Matthew Lazinski passed away like two weeks apart. And so, you know, like it's, it's, it's pretty relevant in the hockey community, but I think, you know, outside, once guys are done playing, I think that's really um, when when the problems start. And, and you know, yes, the NHLPA, the NHL Alumni Association is, is great, um, as far as I know. But what about the players that don't have the support from the NHLPA, well, the NHL you know, Alumni Association? like the guys that banged it out in the coast and the A and, and all that. Where well, you, you know what? I, I think it just goes... You, you know, you're looking at it from an angle of hockey and hockey, like everyone, but just think how busy you are in, in your everyday life. And there's things that you want to do all every day. You don't have time for it. And when you, you know, all these different leagues, it's no different than what if a guy works at, you know, I, I don't know what the like BC power or whatever, and, and they leave, you know, no one looks out for them. So it's, it's kind of who's in your life. And I, I look at, you know, there, are, I don't know how many former players are still walking around live, you know, you know, guys have played one game and, you know, what, what it is, how many guys that played one game in the NHL, one in the American hockey, but there's just so much. And when you're a coach, say you're in the coast, you, you had one coach or two coaches, that's your hockey operations, right? And you might have a goalie coach on some team. So there's three coaches in your hockey operations and that's it. You might have a GM, maybe there's four people, but they're so worried about winning and losing and keeping their jobs and keeping food on the table. Uh, Cause you know, you have to have a job to, to be able to eat and, so you're, tr you're trying to climb a ladder of success. Uh, it's kind of a dog eat dog, as is everything in life. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really, you're, you can't have, to, it's impossible to take care of everyone. That's the, that's the problem. So it's in your environment and we never know, like I never knew you had issues. I knew that you had, uh, you're incredibly shy and that you were, didn't make eye contact with people when you, when you spoke to them or when I spoke to you, your eyes were all over the place. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't know what to look for. You know, I would, as an older person now, 10 years, you know, whatever it is, 12 years from removed from that, uh, you know, I know a lot more things to look for in people and, you know, and, you know, and I'm back home in Canada. I just see, I, it looks like to me that there's a lot more uh, than in my environment where I am in the States when I'm either in Texas or DC, the circles I travel in. But when I go back home, I'm kind of everywhere. And, and uh, so it's, it's just one of those things you, you wish you could take care of everybody, but ultimately it's the people in your life. And like yeah. you, uh, I can't speak for you, but your intro was awful. Like from, from like my point of view, like what you had, what you've gone through. And I had no idea it was that bad. Cause I, I try to tell people how scary Hastings is. It's to me, it's the ugliest place I've ever seen in my life. Um, the, you know, driving down that road, I, I, you know, when I played the NHL, I would put my head down below the windows between my legs and not look at Hastings. It, it, like it, 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 it was terrifying. And it's the, to me, it's the worst, it's the worst place in the world. And, you know, I know those people don't want to be there, but they're there. And it is, it, like I said, it takes you, you know, you didn't take yourself there. Drugs took you there and how you got involved with it. I don't know what, what brought it. Uh, I don't know. But at, at the same time, you, you wouldn't have listened to anybody because you couldn't listen to anyone until there was an incident in your life that helped you That's get right. the help you needed. You needed to listen to yourself for once. And it's not easy to do. And I've been, like I said, I've helped in certain situations with people in my life. And, you know, one of my best friends in the world, a guy that's kind of, I, I idolize a doctor uh, out West, a guy that I, I grew up with, became a doctor, uh, made all types of money, never did a drug or drink in his life. He's like 40 years old and got kidney stones. And next thing you know, the guy's hooked on Oxycontin and he had never heard of it before. And he's a doc, like he just wasn't in his world. So it's somehow he, he got out of it, saved his life, but it, it lost everything that he had. And it's just, it's people, it, it just, it just takes people and it's so hard. So I don't think you would have taken help 10 years ago. No. Uh, and, and I don't think I would have either. And I think, you know, I think you touched on a good point. It's not about, um, you know, saving everybody, but you know, my vision is, you know, the puck sport foundation is it's really taken off. And honestly, we've already done so many, so many great things just by connecting people, um, people that, you know, there's a lot of guys struggling. <laughs> people don't even realize how many messages I get. Um, since I started this podcast where people are, are guys are in, and girls, like I could talk about guys, wives, even, um, so it's just, it's, it's a life thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, we're, we're trying to, you know, because I always identified as a hockey player and like, that was just my life. Right. And I think, you know, bringing that to the hockey community and I'm just, I'm not talking the NHL so much. I'm just talking about generally hockey in general. And I think we can provide support and, and try to normalize it within the hockey community. Then maybe it'll, it'll encourage guys to, to go get help. Yeah. I think, I think having to get outside of your organization is a big thing too. Maybe is well, I, I, Brady, from what you're saying to me, like, and it does trigger a memory for me. So the, the biggest thing is that, um, it is best to be with like people. So you and I have the common bond of being right handed shot hockey players that played right wing and things like that. So we have that bond. We were pro hockey players. We played junior hockey. We grew up in Canada. So I understand a lot about 
how you grew up. I don't know everything about your day-to-day life as a kid. I don't, you don't know anything about mine. Uh, but there's trauma involved in, in most people's lives. There, there's shit that they deal with. But at the same time, going through you know, all your regrets of beating yourself up as a former pro hockey player, uh, it would be better if you talk to me and I talk to you than we talk to the next door neighbor who you know, is an engineer. He, he's not going to get, he's not going to understand a lot. So, you know, we had to have empathy for each other versus sympathy. We'd, you know, be more understanding. So what you're doing, I, I applaud. So it, it, you do want to keep it, you know, it's not that the teams have to do it. It's, it would, it's the community of hockey people taking care of the community of hockey people. And then there's an outreach and, and there's a push to go, you know, to, to open up outside of that. So, you know, like, like the people I have helped in my life who have had addiction, you know, whether it be drug or alcohol, uh, they're hockey people. And, you know, and what I have found out, uh, you know, a lot of people get out of the game and they hate, they hate it. But what I found out, especially in the last two years with the things that uh, I've been involved with, is there are so many unbelievable people that, that will go forward and help. And, you know, whether it's getting a group of guys that you never met before to help you with an intervention because you know that they knew this guy that, you know, whatever it is, there, there is that. And it means more. And you know what? The guy, players are always so they, they worry more about what the, the guys beside them think and to a, to a fault. And, and it's a huge mistake that you worry so much about what everyone thinks about you as far as, you know, your insecurities and being honest. But when, when you break it down, uh, those are the guys that you need to talk to. Those are, that's why, you know, you're, you're seeing it more and more. And I think with what we've gone through this, you know, you know, being prisoners the last seven or eight months, you know, in lockdown to, you know, some it's the worst thing in the world for a lot of people, especially with mental health issues. Like that was one of my worries right off the bat is that people with high anxiety, severe depression, alcoholism, drugs, like where were they going to go? What was it going to do to them? And but I, I just look at, you know, once again, it's guys have to learn to open up in the game and not be so stoic and not and not be and then have guys. Uh, I'm always been kind of very opinionated and not scared to say someone that, you know, I know what you're doing uh, and you, you've got to go nuclear to help people sometimes. And I've learned that the more the older I've gotten, uh, I've learned you know, like I could I played at the teammate years ago that ended up dying a, a, a year or two after we played together. And phenomenal dude used to make me laugh but you know what i couldn't help him i couldn't help him at all i couldn't i could not i i didn't know what to do to help him so i basically he was using me uh as a guy to take care of him all the time when he when he screwed up but he, he didn't own himself drugs owned him and so it's just but it's you know you get older and older you realize there's more you could do but you know when i was 27 i didn't know what to do when I'm, now that i'm much older I know what to do, but not as, you know, I don't know everything. I don't know near everything, but I know what I would do differently. Uh, like everything in life, you know, it's just your past experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think, you know, just, we talked about the, the awareness and I, I think that's great. And, and I do want to remind people that, you know, if you want uh, support, you can go to cmha.ca if you're in Canada, uh, look for resources. And uh, we're actually thinking uh, thinking about doing a, uh, a cross Canada tour with a bunch of former pro hockey players just to, uh, just to spread the message of not only the puck sport foundation, but to bridge the gap in between, uh, for in between the communities and, and the people in the communities to let them know that they have some of these resources that they might not even know that they have by having little mini expos in, in their cities. And, and I think we can uh, reach a lot of people that way, but yeah, you, you, you touched on it. it is it's all about who's in your life and, and, 
who, who you surround yourself with. And, you know, that's the biggest thing is, you know, as soon as I stopped playing, uh, the hockey community was here and I started to go this way. And, uh, you know, the podcast, this podcast is, is helped me. It's brought you back. back. It's brought you back in. Yeah, that's right. And, um, I'm so grateful that, you know, guys like yourself and, and Doug McLean, like you talked about who, by the way, mentioned, I wanted, I've totally forgot to cue up the audio. I wish I had it because I just had him on and he wanted me to tell you that he hopes that you can use this experience to get better than he is on Real Kipper Anun. So <laughs> that you can actually go into full retirement and you can take over for him fully. He I, could, I could never be as good as that cocky bastard at anything. I, <laughs> I love him. And you know yeah. what? He was one of my favorite uh, assistant coaches. And actually, my, I always tell him, I said, you know, when, when you were no longer my assistant coach, my career went downhill every year. And uh, I used to love the guy. And, uh, yeah. He used to lie to me on a daily basis. I believed all his lies and always played well because of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes that's what you got to do as a coach, right? Just yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Get, get your guys going. Uh, before I let you go, I know you're a busy guy. There's a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. And one of them is this. For people that for people that don't know that guy, I didn't leave it because it was long. That guy was bleeding, by the way, Kalinsky, right? Kevin Killer Kaminsky, yeah. And what do you want to know? Is that one of those fight? Okay, well, <laughs> we played we played together. It kind of ruined. He and Craig Bruby kind of ruined my career in okay. Washington. Sorry, we I didn't on, bring it up, but now no, we're talk about. No, I jo- I joke around because I I used to get a lot of ice time. I you know I get a you know, 12, 15 minutes of ice time a game, which is a lot for a guy who's like a, a high penalty minute player. And uh, they played, they started playing me, you know, center, left wing, right wing, up and down, first, second, third, fourth line. And then these two guys, and we got a, our, our coach puts us on a line together. And those two, they, it, they just never showed up. There were so many penalties. We hardly got to play. Like it was just like got to the point where you'd just be sitting there. And I had never been a player that was sitting on the bench my entire life. And mm-hmm. I always got ice time every, and I was always in, you know, if it was in the AHL, was on the first and second line. And the IHL, first and second line. Uh, you know, the coast, first line. Like, everywhere. Junior, first line, or, or top defenseman. Look, I get the, the, these two jackasses, and it was just like, what were they thinking? Like, they had no rhyme or reason to, you know, now the coaching's better and smarter. But, so, Killer, I was a couple times he had fight. I said, don't fight that guy. I'll fight that guy. Like, you know, Killer didn't have the physique, wasn't big, but he was fearless. Probably the... The most fearless guy I've known. And I saw him lose a fight one night, and I'm sure he won't admit it, but he lost a fight. And I, I go, you all right? And he goes, yeah, fuck. Did you see that punch I hit? I go, like, he had a cut from here to here. Like, killer head in his pro hockey career, in his face alone, I think, maybe it was all the stitches all, all time, 561 stitches in his, just wow. up from here up. And uh, just, just like a warrior, like just anything to play, phenomenal teammate. Uh, there with you till the end. A- anyways, this I hadn't seen him in years, and we're playing this alumni game. And uh, he goes before the game. He walks up. And he goes, "Hey, mayday, mayday, mayday!" He goes, uh, "You want to fight?" I go, "Cause he's got a screw loose." I go, uh, <laughs> "What kind of fight?" Cause I I know I can't trust him. He's a, he yeah. doesn't do anything half assed. 
And uh, this was after warm-up. In a warm-up, he was flying like it was first NHL game. Not, a, not an alumni game in, a, in the you know, practice facility with like <laughs> 2,500 people, whatever it was. And uh, he goes, well, well, I go to you, over the shoulder, punch you in the chest. You know, what, what are we doing? We just wrestling. And he goes, no, just make it look good. I go, what's make it look good mean? So I don't fight him in the first. A couple times I thought he was going to open ice hit me. And so I got my stick ready to cross-check him if he tried to. So third before the third period on the intermission he goes are we gonna fucking fight or not and i go once again and i won't tell you what i called him but i go is this a real fight or a fight just make it look good i go i'm telling you he hit me so the next thing we go out there he comes up and gives me a shot so i just turn it to hand him <laughs> and then as i go to hit him he jersey punched me right in the right in the beak so I just was like, I was talking shit to him the whole time and just yeah. drilling him right in the button. And he's jersey punching me. I got his arm just like I always did when I fought. And uh, then all of a sudden, I see his eyes go up a little bit and he drops just for a section. He just like, he blinked out. He didn't get knocked out. He just kind of, whatever it was, he lost, knees buckled. He, I go on top of him. And then as all of a sudden, he wait, he's, next, he's probably going to scratch my face. I, you know, killer was crazy. Yeah. And, uh, so I look and he's cut like from here to here. And I'm like, oh shit, everyone's going to be mad at me. The caps are going to be mad at me. You know, <laughs> and then the next thing I you know, was just, and all the guys are like, what the hell was the guys are kind of mad at me. Yeah. I go, you know, fuck him. Yeah. I said, cause I could tell I was yeah. never a bleeder, but I could tell yeah. that my nose. And I said to the, our trainer, I said, Hey, go get some Vaseline. My nose is going to start bleeding right away. He's like, why? Well, I said, just hurry up. So I don't want to bleed over my Jersey. So about a minute later, all of a sudden, my nose just went like that. Yeah. So you pack with Vaseline so it quits. After the game, uh, you know, we all go to this event. And uh, I go to make sure he's all right. You okay? He goes, oh, man, that was the most fun I ever had, had in forever. So the same. happiest guy in the world. He's got a cut from here. to. I can't remember if he got stitches or not. But yeah. anyways, so after the thing, his uh, – date or whoever she was she's all pissed off at me at the, at the restaurant you know the restaurant bar we go to she's all pissed off he goes no i, I wanted that i wanted that so i hang out with him and you know he, he doesn't drink he uh you know i get him a water and she's pissed off at me the whole time so the next day we get to the caps at a convention you know about ten thousand people at it pretty awesome event yeah and uh i, I walk in with him and he's the happiest guy in the world that he's got a cut he's got a black eye and then Bruce Boudreaux walks up to me a little while later. He goes, thank God you did what you did last night. He goes, I hate that motherfucker. He must have just actually abused Bruce when he was playing. So Bruce says, uh, Bruce says to me, he goes, yeah, we were on the plane last night in Chicago because they were having a preseason game in Chicago. And he goes, our, our, uh, the senior writer or whatever, uh, Mike Vogel for the Caps, goes, uh, you'll never guess who had a real fight in the alumni game. He goes, he goes I already know. It, it's going to be, it'll be May and Kaminsky, and I hope May kicked his ass. And uh, so Bruce, Bruce was so happy that, that I was able to catch him with one. But uh, I probably felt the damage more because I had a headache for a month from, from you know, getting hit in the nose, I think right there on that big. And uh, that Vaseline was in there. And when it finally came out of me about a month later, I felt way better. Finally, my headache finally went away. It was no. like I had a sinus headache from that little prick. Well, there you go. That's your last fight, right? I mean, hey, that's hilarious. That's, yeah, that, that'll probably be the last uh, one, eh? Well, they, they don't like us to do that, so. And you know what? It, it, it was fun, to tell you the truth. It, felt good, to, it, it felt good to drop them, so. Of course. I, I don't hide from the fact that I, I like to do it when I did it. 
I actually don't like to watch it so much because now, you know, as an older guy, you worry about people getting hurt. And I think they're all really bad fighters now. I think their technique's awful. They're more prone to injury. They don't protect themselves. Yeah. And fewer, fewer fights, but it seems like there's more injuries in those fewer fights. Yeah, that's true. I, I see that too. And yeah, it just it's it's a totally different world. And and I'm glad that I I got to grow up in, in the Rock'em Sock'em era and see it. And and it's it's you know it was a lot of fun. And then I got to I got to play like that a little bit. But when I was in Norfolk, I was so out of it. I I didn't play like myself at all. I didn't really fight too much. We had like 30 fights the year before, and I barely even fought when I was there. Well, I think one of the things, though, Brady, is when you when you get to pro, all of a sudden everyone's way bigger. Uh, you know, you're an older guy and junior, so you got more self-confidence. So it just happens so fast. And, you know, all of a sudden those guys were big. Remember how big some of those kids were? Like we're, we're going into games and there's guys beefed right out. And I was oh, like, yeah. and I would tell like some of the guys that I don't want you fighting that guy. And they yeah. go, why? Well, he can't play. First of all, he's useless. He'll never play in the NHL. Cause I don't think he can pass a drug test. Yeah. And, you know, you just work, but guys, there's some guys that are, were just animals. And I thought it was, yeah. why do they even bother? Yeah. Uh, cause you want guys that can play the game and do it. And then it is, it's a, it's a shitload of pressure. And, you know, one of the things I was lucky for is because I, I grew up with my dad's, I'm about a foot taller than my dad. My dad comes up to hear on me and I was brought up to be my dad's height and have that attitude, you know, fight back against bullies, whatever, in a different time. I'm sure I'd be in jail by the time I was 12 from, you know, the amount of fights I had as a kid, but you know what I, I, was never I learned to take a deep breath at a young age I never had to use to to fight I never stayed up all night drinking or you know getting high and I know that guys there I talked to guys that you know they I, I hate it I said I didn't think about it I just played the game I just got wound up I uh, got my adrenaline going that was my favorite drug and then you went out and do it and then it's over it's over all that thought and worry that guys put into it and I go it, you just try to teach people like just go do it it's yeah. just don't think about it just do it never picture yourself losing a fight and it becomes a lot easier so there is stress involved um and i only had a couple games in the nhl where i was stressed about who we were playing yeah. and uh it was because i i knew that the, that guy was gonna come hunting for me from something i did the game before i was like oh, i hope this isn't the last one but, is there you know, one, I, is there one guy that you would go on the record and be like hey i was maybe not scared but i was thinking twice when we were playing against him right he was on the ice Oh, fuck. D Dave Brown was the scariest. The, the guy was... I, you fought him in the video there. Yeah, I fought him, and I got lucky on that one. But, you know, his jersey used to come off for a while. He had, like, a baby jersey in Edmonton. He was annihilating people. And I always thought, you know, how many... I, I, like I said, I had to find a way to stay alive in those fights. And I thought, well, him, I might have to grab the hair and pull his head back because that jersey comes off. Because the, the yeah, game... Yeah, he it off. Eh? He yeah, well, yeah, and then he's six foot five, and he's a lefty that's just... He, he was a serial killer on skates, like the way yeah. he fought. He looked, he enjoyed that too much. But I told him uh, when I finally, he, he walked up to me one night in the arena here in Washington and he said, uh, Man, I really like you on TV. You're blunt, blah, blah, blah. And he's, and uh, I, I look at his hands and they're like, that's each fist is like that big. And I, I go, you remember back when we fought? I go, here's what was going through my mind. So the game before we had our fight, I had, uh, fought beat up a kid named Cordick the game before a big kid in philly and brownie was on john the bench Cordick? no his brother i played a john oh, and okay that's the player i was referring to earlier. i figured i figured i figured we, we grew up together and uh so we, uh you know the game before i have a tussle with uh dan and then uh maybe later in that game it was that game later in that game so it's a saturday night in dc and then i remember i, I make a i i would like throw one of the greatest fake slap shot moves go around a defenseman ring one off the bar, I turn around, there's Brown. And he's like sitting there with his gloves. 
So we square off, but he kept trying to pull his jersey back. And there was like, I always said, there's two people in me. There was this guy on this side that was like crazy and would just say whatever. And then there was this guy over here that says, shut up, shut the hell up. And I told Brownie every time, I, I'm, this side's calling him every name in the book was we're squaring off. And every time I go near him, he backs up because he wants to annihilate me. He wants to murder me. He's going to pull his jersey off. And I'm telling you, you pull it. I'm grabbing your hair and I'm just sitting there like a chihuahua, just going like this, just talking shit. And then every time I went at him, he'd back up because he wanted that jersey off. Paul Stewart was the ref, I think. Uh, anyways, this is going on and on. The other side saying, shut the fuck up, Al. Shut up, shut up. And this side just like ter- tormenting Dave. So <laughs> I told I told him that story. And then I, we get in the penalty box. We didn't have glass in the penalty box back there between the two. T- you know, just had just had the little boards and the timekeepers. And I was just sitting there the entire, you know, we got, I think we got twos. And it was back when the refs had to come to the bench to let you out. And I'm just sitting there the just MFing them the entire time. And then as soon as the refs come to take us back to the benches, I come over and give them a stick. And I tell them that story. We just laugh and laugh. And then, you know, two guys that hated each other when we played, we, uh, we, we tell story and we laugh and we laugh and laugh. We have a lot of same friends, a lot of the, we had same coaches and we could, we could sit in a, a press room before a game and tell stories and laugh. And people must just think these guys are psychotic, but that's the world we lived in back then. And I don't regret it. I'm not embarrassed of it. And uh, I love to fight another and tell, you know, talk about it the rest of my life. So it was, it, it was good times, but you, you go back and, Dave Brown, though, was the guy that I always, if he was drinking water on the bench, I knew he was drinking water on the bench. And I just was always wary of him. And I'm fortunate he didn't get to play as much as me, but, you know, I, I'd be running around. And uh, I, I think there were fewer injuries because of guys like Dave Brown, believe it or not, because the sticks were down. There wasn't hitting from behind. We were allowed to cheat the way we hit back then, so we didn't leave our feet. We didn't have to intersect guys. Uh, so completely different time. But brownie kept the peace uh so when they say they call guys policemen they truly were back then those big guys yeah and i mean that's <laughs> they just don't have them like that anymore uh you mentioned guys like mcsorley and, and mcclellan i actually pl- uh, was supposed to play for kev mcclellan there down in when he was in wichita but uh man yeah dave brown he was a beast and uh yeah, I mentioned he used to throw his jersey like right off, like kind of like Gino Ojic used to do too, or whatever. I think Brownie was the first guy because remember he yeah. was already around. Oh yeah, for sure. So yeah. he, when they told him he couldn't do the baby jersey, I think McSorley was the first guy to use a goalie jersey, okay. and then Brownie didn't even have his pads weren't even connected. It's not like you could hit him and hurt him, anyways. Uh, yeah. You know he was so he was huge. You know, probably seven feet tall in his skates, whatever he was. He it was massive, and uh, like I said, his fists were like they were the double fists. And, uh, but completely different. It was, and you know what, Rob Ray figured it out and ended up adding about 10 years to his career Yeah. because when he was keeping his jersey on when he was younger, he wasn't the greatest. And then all of a sudden he got confidence and the jersey started coming off and he started to take over. And, uh, but when everyone starts to doing it, it kind of e- equals the playing field. I couldn't imagine fighting a guy like that yeah. and, uh, with, with no gear on. So yeah, that, that would have been, you, you can't fall. You can't fake fall. You, you got to find a way to tie those guys up so they don't take you down. That's right. So you were, quickly too, before we let you go, we'll talk just five minutes or whatever. You, you're transitioned and you're, you're on TV now. And I, I agree with Brownie. Uh, you're doing a great job. We don't get to see a ton of you up here uh, because you're on NBC. Um, but I have, I have, I actually saw you when you first started uh, doing American league games. That's when I saw years ago, I think. I think I was doing the all-star game or something. That's I used right. to, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. That's, that's what the hard, that's the hardest thing to do because 
you know, the day of those games, you have about 10 guys that weren't supposed to be in the all-star game. You know, guys get hurt on Friday or Saturday, then they're adding players. And next thing you know, you, you get all these, you got to scramble and get your homework on all these kids. Uh, and it's a pretty big moment for them because, you know, they get the, the skills competition and things like that. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm lucky I've been able to do, I did those over the years. A lot of fun. Are you, are you, uh, you must be enjoying it. Um, there you are there. Uh, yeah. You're, you work, uh, you know, in and around the Washington Capitals and, and you guys won the Stanley Cup and you got a ring. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You know what? So I've done it for 11 years. And I, what was that? My, my ninth year? Uh, uh, or that was my, I, I can't remember. Whatever year that they won the cup, though. So, you know, a, a good team, not always the right coaches, not always the right rosters, and a lot of pain involved, you know, with the, with the team and, and the fan base have been tortured for years. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, getting, I'm lucky uh, that I've gotten a, you know, my favorite guy to watch is Ovi. Oh, and I, I love Ovi and Crosby and to see those games head to head. Uh, so it's been, it's been a blast. So like for a, a guy that was, I was out of hockey for a while in the early two thousands and you don't want to move my kids all over. And I realized how, how unhappy I was and I got back in it. And you know what? I like being around. I like the people in the game. Uh, I think the last, you know, dur during this lockdown, hockey took a beating on a, on a lot of different fronts. And it's always like one incident makes everyone look bad. But from what I've seen with, uh, you know, people helping people within the game and around the game, uh, I'm lucky to be in it. You're lucky to be in it because you look at, you know, like I said, I've I gone through, helped some people with interventions and I reached out to hockey guys that I never knew, never spoke to. And uh, fuck, they were there in a heartbeat and did what they had to do. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, and then calling you know, the teams that uh, I've contacted to help out guys have been absolutely phenomenal. Like what they do for people. And a lot of it you don't hear of, but it is there. And uh, so, you know, I, I just look back. There's so many good people in the game. I don't want to leave it. That's right. Well, it doesn't look like you have to anytime soon, right? So um, we'll, uh, we'll wrap this up, uh, Mazer. But uh, listen, I appreciate it. And I, I know uh, you too. You, I just wanted to, uh, you know, send my condolences. I know you had a, a really tough loss. I don't want to bring it up. But um, from a former player of yours, um, I just wanted to say that I'm really sorry for your loss and uh stay strong and and keep doing what you're doing man um i love what you're doing uh i watch real kipper all the time uh, are you gonna be a regular on that show or what yeah you know what i've been buddies with him forever since we started playing together in 1989 and uh nick's a piece of work i wish i could do it with doug more often uh because he may everything he says makes me laugh they might be yeah. the most sarcastic happy person in the world and uh but yeah d doing things with those guys uh so it's it just you do what you do when, you know, former players come call and ask you to help. You always help out. So to me, I'm happy that you're uh, in recovery. I wish you stay on this path and uh, continue to help people take care of yourself more than anyone. Right. And, uh, and thank you for everything. Thank you for today. Hey man, I truly appreciate it. And I'll make sure I upload that video um, for, for everybody. Cause I, I honestly, I like that one. It's probably <laughs> the best one I've done. Um, Shoot me a text on that one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure I will, buddy. And thank you so much for doing this. And uh, you guys can all see Al May on NBC whenever hockey comes back. All right, take <laughs> care, kiddo. At noon, I hope. All right, we'll talk to you soon, Al. All right, bye now. All right, guys. That's episode 59, Hockey to Heroin, The Road to Recovery. Huge thanks to uh, the legend himself, Alan May. What an episode. So many great stories. Um, what an unbelievable guy. 
like I said, I wish I would have talked to him a little bit more when I played for him, uh, but looking forward to uh, continuing our friendship and, and hopefully uh, talking some more down the road. I hope you guys all enjoyed that episode um, here. If you're watching live, if not listening later, um, the audio version, please like and subscribe wherever you're listening. Follow me on social media at Hockey to Heroin, at Hockey to Heroin podcast. And if you don't want to follow me, please, please, please follow the Puck Support Foundation. And I want to know right now, do you have what it takes? Do you have what it takes to be a Puck Support Warrior? I bet you do. I bet you do. Get involved. Be an ambassador for the Puck Support Foundation. I get teary-eyed thinking about it because I get inspired. I get inspired and uh, I never used to get inspired for the last 10 years. And thank you. You know, thanks to Al May. Thanks to Taylor for holding it down with the kids and, and, and everything. I miss you guys like crazy. Um, and of course, thank you to my good friend, Matt Thompson and his girlfriend, Caitlin and his dad, LT. Uh, for their hospitality here in Morrisburg. Um, it's been unbelievable. I'm going to wipe my tears. I'm just so grateful. I'm so lucky. Um, and it really hit me when Al May was like, you know what? Lucky. And I was like, you're lucky. He's like, you're lucky to be in it. And I thought, I took it, I was like, oh. I'm like, wow, I am. Like, it's got to talk to Alan May, you know friends with Doug McLean and, and all these great hockey personalities. And on top of that, I've met so many unbelievable people that aren't professional hockey players or aren't in the hockey community. Um, and for that, I am so appreciative. Um, please, if you need support, reach out to me um, or to somebody I don't have all the answers. If you're looking for me, I don't, I simply, I don't, I struggle every single day. I make mistakes every single day, um, but I'm open to suggestions and I'm open to help. And, and that's the big thing. So just reach out. It's October 10th. It is mental awareness, national mental awareness, mental, is it mental health or mental illness? I think it should be mental health, mental health awareness day. I think that's what it is. Um, it's uh, it's real, guys. You don't have to struggle. There's help. There's a lot of options. If you're in the hockey community and you want help from the hockey community, we're here for you. Puck Sport Foundation's here. Um, please follow us on social media at Puck Support, at Puck Support Hockey. That is going to be the hockey school we're starting. And of course, at Puck Support Warriors. Do you want to be a puck sport warrior? I asked you, you're going to be featured on the Instagram page. Um, looking for ambassadors, looking for ambassadors. Also, I'll remind people too, do you want a hoodie? Either just a blank one or a custom? Let us know. Let me know. Support Dave Gilmore up in Kingston, guys. November 14th, GoFundMe page is going. Go to GoFundMe. Search Puck Support. There's two different ones. The Puck Support Foundation Gratitude Crusade in memory of Matthew Lazinski and Dave Gilmore's run and cycle for mental health and addiction through the Puck Support Foundation. 
it's unbelievable. We're raising some good money to get us started so that we can go after the larger government grants and the larger donors and all of it. And uh, we can really help people and save lives. I know we can. I know we will. And that's what inspires me. Um, it inspires me to keep going. It gives me hope. Um, and like I said, I just, I had no hope, guys. I had no hope at all. Um, thank you so much for your support. Sometimes, some days I'm just a little more emotional than others. Um, but I like to feel my feelings. You know, I can be vulnerable today. Um, I can feel my feelings um, and and I'm okay if I cry. Like, you know, it's okay. And, and I want to tell everybody watching, it's okay for you to do the same. Um, two, please, if you want to support me directly and if you want to sign copy, a signed picture, patreon.com slash hockey to heroin. Become a patron. Thank you to everybody. David Carlson. Brenna Leary, my auntie Lee Chrischuk, and Coach Warren Nye for being my patrons. If you want to support me directly, this is how you can do it. Um, Patreon.com slash hockey to heroin. Um, that's, uh, that's really it uh, for me today. I um, want to give a shout out to uh, all my family back in BC miss you guys like crazy dad and mom and and everybody um hell even my sister Brittany. if you know me and you know my story and you're listening is that shocking um certainly miss my nieces and nephew and most importantly brooklyn and brody um but we just keep moving forward guys one foot in front of the other and good things will happen. Thank you so much for watching or listening, whichever you did. Another big thanks to Al May. Um, I'm going to leave you guys with the Puck Support Memoriam video that was done uh, by Steve Buckley uh, down in Beaverton, Oregon. Uh, hopefully you've seen it. Um, if you have, please watch it again. If you haven't, Please enjoy this. It makes me cry every single time. We talked about guys like Matthew Lazinski and my former line mate, Mitch Fadden, who passed away also in 2017. And it, you know, there's a picture of me in Norfolk. There's a picture of Mitch Fadden in Norfolk. We were roommates. We were line mates. Mitch, rest in peace. Love you, brother. He's featured in this video. To all of our fallen brothers and sisters, we think of you often. And the stigma. Support people, don't judge people. I hope you guys all enjoyed episode 59. Big thanks to Alan May. Please subscribe wherever you're listening. I'm going to fight through these tears. Matt's dog's Bentley is barking to get into the room. Huge thanks to Alan May, guys. Hope you're all having a great weekend. Happy Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? What are you grateful for today? 
I am so grateful. I have so many things to be grateful for. Follow me on Instagram. I'm going to make a list and I'd love to hear your list. Follow us at Team Issued Limited as well. There's going to be a Team Issued Limited contest next week on Instagram. So follow us, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Saturday. And uh, I hope you guys are all having a great day. If you're not, change it right now. Right now. Change your attitude. Change your perspective, guys. Remember, have a great day if you so choose.